Well, good. Well, let's uh, pray this morning and then we'll get started and have our topic for this morning. Lord God, thank you so much. What a blessing it is to gather around your word this morning and sing praises to you in our worship service for you are worthy. And we are so grateful for this opportunity that we have to do this together as this body of Christ here in Bakersfield, California. And we pray, Father, that our praise would be worthy of the halls of heaven and that you would give us um, more humility as we approach you, the God of the universe, that we would recognize how small we are and how unable we are, and that we would recognize that you are the one who enables us, and you are the one who gives us strength, and you are the one who helps us to wake up each morning to give us the strength that we need to accomplish our daily tasks. And even as we will see this morning, that you are our great sustainer, that you sustain all things, not only our bodies, but everything around us that allows us to move and to exist. So we thank you for that. Give us sharp minds this morning to understand and to consider these deep truths. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, last week, um, Grant filled in for me and covered the first part of the divine attributes. Move this guy a little bit here. Um, And uh, obviously, that was because I was preaching that morning, so I was a little bit preoccupied. And uh, it was great because it afforded the opportunity for uh, our little baby to come, and that was his first Sunday, actually, last week, which was a lot of fun. So um, we had a, a ball having him there, and um, and it, I just happened to be preaching that morning, which was great. So uh, that was a really enjoyable experience. But Grant filled in for me for the Divine Attributes Part 1, and I trust that you really enjoyed that segment with him. That's uh, He had a, a really good section there on a lot of the, uh, the really important divine attributes that we know and that we love. And we're going to cover the rest of those here, and then we're going to talk a little bit more about creation and providence and just God in history and how God works in history. And uh, this may dovetail, it probably will. I probably should just telegraph this in advance that it probably will dovetail into another segment that we'll do the next time. Uh, but uh, that's, that's okay because I think this, there's some really important parts here that I think that are worth covering. So, Divine Attributes, Part 2, which is part of a, another sub-series of Theology Proper, Part 4. And uh, we could get as granular as we want if we want to go into that with all these different parts here. But, uh, again, we'll also be covering God, creation, and providence. Uh, and and uh, specifically, uh, even God in history. So, as we get into the first segment here, we have God is omnipresent. He is omnipresent, which... If you're familiar with some of these omnis, you should know this at this point, but omni means all or every or everything. So he is all present, meaning that he is everywhere. That's basically what that means. He is everywhere. God is personally present at every moment in the universe. And maybe that could be even phrased a little bit more carefully. God is present in every location 
uh, at every point in the universe, so um, or every time in the universe, uh, God transcends the physical dimensions of the created universe. God does not take up space. This is a hard concept for us to understand because we understand He's omnipresent, but at the same time, He's not actually occupying any of that space, which is complicated, and it has to do with the nature of what it means to be a spirit. Not just the fact of what it means to be God, even though that plays a role into that as well, but just what does it mean to be spirit? Because in theory, you could also say that there are other spirits that that exist, but they don't take up space in the physical universe as we understand it, at least. Um, And a good way to look at this is just that the way that David looks at it from Psalm 139, that it's impossible to escape his presence. It's impossible to escape his presence. That's a good way to consider the omnipresence of God. Uh, And my uh, theology professor at the seminary, and I think I may have mentioned this already, and Steve may have mentioned this too because he had the same professor as well, but uh, Dr. Snyder mentioned to us when he was teaching us that uh, maybe one of the best ways to describe this is that God's arm extends to anywhere in the universe at any moment in time, and there's no, there's no like lapse in time into his arm extending to that part of the universe. Uh, in other words, his arm is capable to do whatever he wants to do at any point, anywhere. And so that's, that's kind of how you can envision uh, him being omnipresent. Uh, it's impossible to limit God to one location as well. And we, we've got so much to cover in this segment. This is a really, a really large uh, session here. So I'm not going to be able to cover every passage. But 1 Kings 8.27 is a, is a good passage. You should look that one up sometime. Um, but it talks about how Solomon says, How can we even limit you, God, to this temple? How, I'm building this temple for you. But how can we even limit you to this one location? We can't do that. So the whole point of this is that no matter where I go, God is with me. And that's what you want to take away from this. No matter where I go, the omnipresence of God makes very clear that God is with me wherever I go. And if you're a believer, that is a very reassuring and comforting thing to know, isn't it? That's a really good thing. The thing is that's scary is if you're an unbeliever, that's also still true. And so that's a problem for you. Uh, basically... You're everywhere you go, God is there, and He can punish you or do whatever He wants to you. Uh, and so, the only way to really, and this is a great way to describe this, but the only way to get out of God's presence to judge is to flee into His presence to save. That's, that's really what it is. Because you're always going to be in the presence of God, so you should just get into His presence to save instead of His presence to judge. That's kind of a paraphrase from Augustine, apparently, uh, according to what the notes say here. Uh, and so the only way to get out of God's presence to judge is really to flee into God's presence to save. Now, that obviously brings up some questions, perhaps in your mind. You're like, wow, okay, so, if, especially if this is new for you, is, does God exist in, like, does he have a presence in hell? Does he have a presence in an unbeliever? You know, in places where you would not expect him to have a presence. And this gets into this notion of, um, and maybe I can even write this out here, in case this is helpful. 
uh, let's see. Yeah, let me do this. All right, so we have what would I would call the personal presence of God and the impersonal. And impersonal is not... Oops, let's see. Impersonal is not... Um, maybe it's not the best way to describe it, but ontological is another way to look at it, too. The whole idea of just his existence, the fact that he exists in places, he exists in all places. But you have the personal and the impersonal. And the personal is something that we can relate with significantly because that's God really not just being there in existence, but he's actually there to help. Uh, his, his presence for good, yes? But then there's also, or, or I, I, I could actually say that it's actually his presence for good or for bad. It's kind of more describing what is God doing um, in relationship to that person or that event at that time in that location. That's kind of more the, the, the personal. But the impersonal is just kind of more like he is there, whether he's doing something very actively in that moment in that thing or not, or intercepting that moment or not. And so when we're asking the question of is God present like in hell or he's present in an unbeliever, it's, it, we have to understand what are we talking about? Which of these are we talking about? And the idea is, is that, well, yes, the answer would be yes here. And technically it would be yes here. But if we're defining just the personal presence of God from like a, uh, like a to bless or to do good to someone then that's not quite what it would be describing when he's oops when he's uh, uh, talking about being present in that moment we're getting confused between the ontological or the impersonal definition with the personal so ontologically he exists everywhere uh, but in terms of to bless and to uh, to give good things to people, that's not always the case. That's not always the case. So we have to make sure that we understand the difference between those. For Second Thessalonians one nine would seem at first to counter that notion because it uses the terminology that these unbelievers who do not submit to the lordship of Christ they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. And so it makes it sound like, well, God's not there because they are going to be away from the presence of the Lord. But again, that's getting, that's this notion that the, the presence of the Lord in that context is talking about a personal presence to bless. It's a personal presence to bless. It's not just talking about ontologically he doesn't exist there. No, 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 that's, he does exist there. Yes, he does. But he's not there to bless and to give favor. And that's how you would understand presence. And um, it's actually the word for face. It's funny, even in Greek and in Hebrew, the word for presence is just the word for face. Uh, The face of someone was often, uh, you would lift a face. When you lift a face in the Old Testament, that means you show favor to them. You show regard to them. You pay attention to them. You hear them out. That's what this presence is giving this notion. It's, It's giving this idea that there is this personal... Um, blessing that is given to the to the person that God is interacting with. So, I mean, we know this. We know the fact that ontologically God is there, even even in the presence of hell. He created hell. It's actually his his domain, uh, and. It's in Revelation that it talks about how the lake of fire is actually in the presence of the Lamb. So we know that that's true. But when you see presence in the Bible, it doesn't always just mean 
ontological presence. It's often talking about a personal presence that God is there to bless, to save, to give good things. There's also the passage in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, where it says, Our Father who is in heaven. And it's funny, it's like, okay, so then why does the Bible try to describe God if he's ontologically everywhere? Why is it really trying to define him in one location, like he's in heaven and not on earth? Or like Psalm 115, verse 3 says, uh, God, Our God is in heaven, he does whatever he pleases. Okay, so it's kind of giving you a little bit of a contrast. We're on earth and he's in heaven, so is he not on earth? What, what, are, what are you describing? And I would argue that the reason why the, the Bible described this is because God also wants to prioritize in his communication to us his oneness. This is really important. There's actually a theological precedent for this in the Old Testament, that God has oneness. And one of the best ways that you can help people to understand oneness is to isolate someone to one location yeah right doesn't that make sense like if if you just like he's everywhere right it would be like well you almost like think in your mind that there's like multiple copies of him all over the place right you want when you're trying to understand oneness you want to think of him in one location and so actually there's a whole precedent for this in deuteronomy chapter 12 because the law in deuteronomy chapter 12 talks about you shall worship me in one location which i shall choose for you which ultimately ended up being jerusalem right that's where he ended up choosing the location for worship uh and so that that whole notion of worshiping me in one location that's communicating to israel i am one god I'm not multiple gods. I'm not a plurality of gods like the other gods of the nations. I am one God, and therefore you shall worship me in one location. But like Solomon says, how can we ultimately confine you to one location? He gets it, but at the same time, God still wants us to understand the oneness aspect of it. Does that make sense? That's why you hear hear terminology like, our Father who is in heaven, right? Because God wants you to understand He is one, and He is a being, right? He's not just, it's not like pantheism, like He's just kind of the creation. Creation is God. That's not the case. He is distinct, and so it's trying to help us to understand that, okay? All right, we could go on and on about that, but that's the omnipresence of God. This is more of the spatial understanding of God, or trying to get an understanding spatially of God, even though that's, that's hard to do. Okay? How about the eternality of God? If we talked about space there, then this is about time. This is about time, the inter- eternality of God. And a good definition for this is that, well, <laughs> the fact that God is not limited by the passage of time. So, uh, in other words, he has no beginning and he has no end. Yeah, he is outside of time. He does not age. He does not forget things. He doesn't grow impatient. Yes, to a point, right? That's kind of true. He doesn't grow impatient as though he's frustrated, um, especially as he's participating in the, the outworking of his plan for redemptive history. And we can see a lot of biblical evidence for this, and I need to start moving quickly here through this, but God existed before the created order. We see that in Genesis 1.1 and Psalm 90. We see that God's actions stem from pre-creation purposes, meaning that he had purposes before creation even was. We see that, you know that classic passage in Ephesians 1, where... Um, God chose us before the foundation of the world. He has purposes. He has plans, even before the world was created, even before the ages. So, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7 communicates this as well. 
we also recognize that God will never go out of existence. Uh, And so not only is he unbounded at the beginning, he's unbounded at the end as well. And God does not age like I just talked about here. He does not grow weary or impatient or forgetful like we just mentioned. And this is a great passage. Turn your Bibles over to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. This one we have to park here for a second because it's a really important text for our purposes. Uh, and I think there's a little bit of a misunderstanding on this. And I think hopefully you'll see this a little bit better after we look at it. You know that this is the context where he's talking about the mockers who will come with their mocking and they will say, hey, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the world was created, all has continued just the way that it was. And then Peter's like, hey, you forgot the fact that there was a whole cataclysmic flood that totally interrupted the whole space-time paradigm on the earth. Uh, And then in verse 8, it says, but let not this one thing escape your notice, beloved, that... One day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. Now, what's interesting here is that typically this verse is viewed as, and understandably so, it's viewed as uh, a theological explanation for how God interacts with time. Okay? So it's kind of like this... This idea that like God's outside of time because one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. So he's just outside of it. And we just can't really understand that. Um, the problem is, is that that kind of misses the point of the context of why this is even being communicated. I'm not arguing for the fact that God is not outside of time. I totally would argue for the fact that he is outside. I'm just not saying, I'm saying this is not what this text is exactly saying as much as we would want it to say that. Um, This idea, this idiom of one day is like a thousand years is actually indicative of God's patience. That's what it's actually communicating. It's actually communicating that God is patient. That means that God can can be so patient that a thousand years is like what? One day. That's how patient He can be. So it feels like when, when it's looking at it from the perspective of God being patient... It feels like two days for him since Christ was on the earth or something like that, right? Obviously, it's an idiom. It's not actually communicating that that's what it feels like. But it is the idea that something that could be very long can feel very short for God because he's very patient. Or God could put such attention on a matter that it's like it lasts for thousands of years, even though it only lasted a day. It's all about his patience. And we see that because it says in verse 9, the Lord of the promise is not slow as some regard slow things, but he is what? Patient towards you. Yes? If, if God, and this is a really important point, if God does not interact with time, if he's completely outside of time, like he doesn't interact with them. He doesn't, he doesn't subject himself in time to some degree. Then patience means what? Nothing. It means nothing. How is God patient if he's outside of time? Because patience assumes what? Time. That there's time. Again, I'm not saying that God is not outside of time. He is. But God, when he interacts with his creation, places himself mysteriously also within time to interact with us. And that is where we see his patience, which is incredible. 
that God actually has patience. Okay? Now, some will argue, and some will get really heated over this and be like, no, it's, you know, it just feels like patience from our perspective, but it's actually God is completely outside of time. But that really divorces God from us at that point. And their patience really doesn't really mean anything at that point. It's just God doesn't really have any kind of recognition of patience. It's just uh, because just we kind of visualize it from our perspective. But that's, I would argue that's not exactly what's being described. It's not saying it's from our perspective. So I would argue Second Peter chapter 3 is not a theological statement of God being outside of time as much as it indicates that God chooses to operate within time in his interactions with those that are within time. So kind of putting it all together, God's existence is eternal in that it transcends time while God acts in the time-space universe and interacts with his creatures, okay? God is outside of time, yes, but in his interactions with the space-time universe, he does operate within time and has a, a sort of experience of time with still being outside of time, okay? And that at that point, we've reached our limit to understanding how God can do that. But he's God, so we should expect that he can what? Do that, right? The, the, that makes sense. In fact, if he couldn't do that, then we would wonder, is he really God, right? All right, so that's God is eternal. Now, let's talk about his power, his force, his strength, omnipotent, all-powerful, God is all-powerful and is able to do all that his perfect wisdom has decided to do. Job Job talks about this in a lot of different places. Job 42, verse 2, Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God cannot do what is, though, contrary to his nature. And this is interesting, because when we talk about all-powerful, and when you know, you're talking with kids, they're like, he's all-powerful. He, so he could do anything. He could even sin. It's like, no, heresies. No, stop. Uh, right? It's like, they don't, you know, they're turning, you know, it's like, he could do anything he wanted. Right? Anything. It's like, well, no, actually, our God can do anything that is within the confinements of his nature. And his nature is never to sin. And so he can't approve evil, like Habakkuk 1, verse 13 says. He can't deny promises. 2 Timothy chapter 2, he remains faithful even if we're faithless. He can't lie. The, it literally says in Greek in Titus 1, 2, the unlying God. <laughs> I think it's a funny way to look at it, right? The, the unlying God, the one who cannot lie. Hebrews 6, verse 18 says it's impossible for God to lie. He can't tempt anyone. James chapter 1, you may know that one well. And uh, this is a fun one. He can't do anything absurd, or I should say, he will not do anything absurd or self-contradictory. He will never do anything absurd or self-contradictory. And I love these things. Have you ever like, run into those people that are like, um, they're so uh, opposed to the gospel that they come up with these really bizarre, like, well, can he make a rock that he can't lift, right? You know, like, can he make a rock so heavy that he can't lift it? Or can he make a square circle, you know, or like things that are like rationally doesn't make any sense, they're like opposites. Um, or a married bachelor or something like that, right? It's like, how. So the, the point is, is that at that point, the person is being absurd, right? Who's asking, if they're genuinely asking those questions, like genuinely, and they actually mean that, those questions. 
they're actually being absurd. Because the whole point is, is that what we could argue all day on like God's capabilities and what he can do and what he can't do, right? That kind of thing. But at the end of the day, it comes down to the fact that God will never do that. He never will. And so because of that, it is, it is the dumbest thing to ask those questions in seriousness. Because he will never, ever, ever do that. Ever. And so you're just kind of chasing a question that is, um, which really you already know the answer to. He never will do that. And you never should pursue those with any seriousness. All right, so that is at least the confinements of what God, God is able to do. It's really funny. This is a really simple theological point. God is able to do everything except for this list right here. And then that's it, right? It's like, okay, we're good. So it's really more about defining what God can't do, and it's a pretty short list than compared to what God can do because otherwise he could do anything and everything. He's all-powerful, okay? Him, he created the universe. You just look at the universe, and you're like, wow, there is infinite power there. God is also all-knowing. That's what omniscient means. He's also all-knowing. This is where we get the word science from, knowledge. All, omniscient, uh, omniscient, uh, all-knowing. God perfectly and exhaustively knows everything about himself. So he is self, completely, fully self-aware and full of self-knowledge. And all that he has created and that would include the angelic realm and all the spiritual realm as well, not just the material universe. And that would include all time, past, present, and future. And then, this is awesome, actual and possible. So if you're getting very technical with the, you're trying to get to mathematical precision here on everything that God knows, we're even talking about, if you've ever studied in math, real numbers and imaginary numbers. All things real and all things Possible, right? That's what we're talking about. This is everything, right? He knows everything. There is no, ex- uh, there's no boundary to this, and we see this proved out in several different ways. And different angles are described here with his omniscience. He all knows himself perfectly. First Corinthians two verse ten talks about these things. God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things. The Spirit even searches the depths of God. Yes knows the depths of God. Um, All existing things. Psalm 147, he determines the number of the stars. He gives to them all their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power, and his understanding is truly beyond measure. Or, again, a, a wonderful psalm that we relate with, like we talked about earlier, Psalm 139. Yahweh, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it altogether. Altogether. Now, this knowledge is interesting here. Before there is a word on my tongue, you know it all. You know, sometimes we have this envisionment. And that, you know, in theory, I guess this could be true. It's not like we have a whole lot of knowledge on this. But, but there's like this like timeline, right? Like is sitting in front of God and like, because he's outside of time, right? And so he can just kind of know, just kind of like, um, just kind of from a distance, the fact that, well, this is going to happen next and this is going to happen next. And that's kind of how we envision it, right? But you have to understand the context of one, Psalm 139 because his point is not just, well, God's sitting in front of a timeline. He just knows the next word that I'm going to say. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it. That's, it's more than that because the idea that the psalmist is bringing out is that you know me so well. This is what's incredible. 
And this is where I have a lot more to say on this, which may get us into next time. But you know me so well that you know what my tendencies are, every single tendency. And so you know how I will respond just because you know all of my proclivities, all my tendencies, and who I am on the inside. And so you know the very word that will come out next because it's within my nature to say that. So we don't even have that kind of knowledge of ourselves, but that's how much God knows us. And that's a really helpful thing when we get into the sovereignty of God and our voluntary wills, okay? And we'll talk about that much later, okay? All right, also all things possible. He knows things that theoretically could have happened but didn't happen. Like Matthew chapter 11 says, and I should read this to you, but it says, Matthew chapter 11, verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and in Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and in ashes. So he's giving the theoretical situation. If the miracles had happened, which happened in you, happened with them, then they would have repented. Whoa, that's an interesting thing. <laughs> uh, that's going to be a little bit mind-boggling for, right, for you in, t- in terms of election and like, wait, how does this work exactly? Right. So there's there's a lot going on in there. But I tell to you, he says in verse 22, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Okay, So all things possible. It's not just all things, but he's un- he understands and knows all things that could be. And this plays a huge role into his sovereignty, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. All things future as well. Remember the things, the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And I love the way that that terminology is used. It's not just saying, I'm declaring beginning to end. As though it's, again, like a timeline sitting in front of him. It's just kind of separate from him. No, it's actually involving him. And he's part of orchestrating these things happening. It's not just separate from him. Uh, That's why it says, end from the beginning. Meaning that these events are all tied together, right? The end comes as a result as being from the beginning. The beginning happens, and then there's these events that take place that lead us to the end. Okay? All right. There's more we could go on to that, but that's his omniscience. Okay? All right. Omnisapient. Omnisapient, meaning all wise. God is all wise. And this will be pretty quick. God employs his perfect knowledge in perfectly appropriate ways in order to bring about the enactment of his eternal decree for his glory. He always does things with the greatest wisdom. It factors in, wisdom really factors in all of the data, so to speak. It factors in all of the knowledge, and then it produces the best outcome to align with his greatest goals. Does that make sense? That's what wisdom is. It's producing the best outcome from all the data for his highest priorities, I guess you could say. Okay, And his highest priorities are his glory. And he has a right to do so because he's God. So glory is his ultimate priority. We see the wisdom of God in creation. And 
this is magnified in Proverbs chapter 3. I love that that paragraph there in Proverbs 3, toward the end of Proverbs 3. It talks about, it, with wisdom he founded the earth and, and created the skies. And um, it's, it's incredible. It's actually really neat to see like what Solomon's saying is that um, God created this to work with a with a harmony, with a rhythm, almost like a musical uh, orchestration, uh, a, a musical composition. Is how this world is created, and it's it's intricate, and it's it's designed, and it's it's beautiful. And the whole point is is that if you walk wisely, walking wisely means to walk in step with the rhythm of creation. It's incredible. It's really cool how that actually works. Um, the wisdom of God and redemption. And that's just its own thing. It's incredible to see God doing some unprecedented things with redemption and how he has brought even Jew and Gentile together. And that's a whole discussion for other times as well. The wisdom that comes from God specifically here, um, we must understand that it really, ultimately, when we're talking about this kind of wisdom, the wisdom as things really are, the wisdom as things um, relate to the grand macroscopic plan of the entire universe, that wisdom can only come from God. You can't get that from just looking at creation by yourself or getting that from another human being as though that human being found it on his own. No, this is something that has to come ultimately from God. And so that's a, a really important point. And um, in fact, when I preached on Sunday evening a few weeks ago on Job, we talked about that. The wisdom only comes from God. Uh, and the Job and his friends are debating where can wisdom come from. Well, the fear of the Lord ultimately is, is where Job lands on that. And that means we have to wait for him to reveal himself. Okay? All right, good. God is glorious. This one's really, really short, but just really quick here. The goodness and greatness of God. This is what God's glory really is, or expressing himself in glory. It's the goodness and greatness of God expressed in his attributes, manifested to his creatures, and responded to them... Uh, responded to by them such that God is seen to be weighty, and that's what that word glory means in Hebrew, weight. And the Greek word kind of does have that notion too. Uh, The Greek word actually has this word of light, which is interesting. But weighty, honored, majestic, and praiseworthy. That means he has substance, he has weight, he has glory. And he has the most most glory, he's the most weight. Uh, His his presence plays the greatest role in all of history. And so that's the glory. And so God expresses himself in a glorious way because it catches our attention. That's what the weightiness does. It catches our attention. And that's what he wants us. Uh, that's where he wants us. He wants us to be captivated by him. Okay? That's his glory. All right. Now, the decree of God. Wow. There's, we could spend a whole... We could spend the whole spring talking about the decree of God, but let's just talk about a few things. The decree of God is the eternal plan by which God has rendered certain all the events of the universe, past, present, and future. So this is in contrast to, you know, we talk about the will of God, and I'm going to just write this on here for a second, the will of God. And there's kind of two different ways to look at the will of God. There's the decree... That's all things that just will take place. And this is his moral will. What he wants you and I to do. uh, His will. Uh, We're talking about this one, obviously, right here. This is the one where God has just decreed everything. Even 
even the fact that there, he's decreed the fact that there will be sin, that there will be um, death, that there will be disasters and trouble. Right? This is the decretive will of God. But that's not necessarily what God would want. God does not necessarily want uh, for us to die. It says that God doesn't want it does, does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Uh, God does not want people to sin. Okay, so there are two different ways to look at the will of God, but we're looking at right now just this part here, just for um, just so it's clear to you as we go go through this here. Okay, all right. So this is really all inclusive. Uh, this is really a unified plan. This is something that God has orchestrated all the events so that they actually work together. They're not just independent, discrete segments that just kind of, he just kind of randomly just kind of puts things um, just in, you know, he's in control of this little event and then this little event and then this little event. These events are all beautifully interwoven so that they work toward common purposes. And we see that Romans 8.28 is a very classic passage that shows that all things work together. Yes? They work together for good to those who love Him. Okay? And His plan is eternal. It talks about in Ephesians 3, this was according to the eternal purpose that He has made, realized, or known in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is certain, Psalm 33, it says the counsel of Yahweh stands forever, uh, the plans of his heart to all generations. Okay, so God's plan, God's decree is something that will happen. It will, um, it will stand forever, and it is working together and brings in all of the events of the created universe into one interwoven plan, Okay. That's the decree of God. Now, we'll kind of revisit that more when we talk about providence here in a moment, but let's look at creation. Creation. Oh, man, we could spend a lot of time on this one, too. This is great. (laughs) So, creation. God, can we define it? God, by a direct act, brought into being virtually, instantaneously, everything that is. Okay? So, in other words... The creation, and I think virtually what is intended here by that word virtually, meaning that it can be seen and, and it's something that we can witness and understand. So God, by a direct act, brought into being things that can be seen, and we see that even in Hebrews 11, talks about this, and he did so instantaneously. The instantaneous nature is brought out in Genesis 1 in many ways, and it it, it really... When you, when you hear of old earth creationists talk about day-age theory and the fact that this must have spent millions of years to evolve or God kind of had a process involved in his creative act, um, it really just has to do violence to the grammar of the text and just just turn around what those words actually mean into something else. And that's, that's a problem and, and uh, that's a bummer that when people do that because it really shows where their commitment really lies. Is it really to what God is simply saying or is it to something else that's informing them what they think it should be? Um, the theology of creation, and we're going to walk into this a little bit, this is something that wasn't just God the Father who created the universe. It was actually an, a three-person event. We have God the Father in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 talks about um, there is one God, Father, from whom 
are all things and for whom we exist. So that's true. God the Father was involved in creation. He created the universe. But then it also says that God the Son, it says all things came into being through Him in John 1. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And then the Holy Spirit in Genesis um, chapter 1, verse 2 says that the Spirit of God was present there at creation and He was moving over the surface of the waters. So, by implication, we would understand that the Holy Spirit is also there interacting and a part of the creation process. On top of the fact that you have that terminology there in the text of let us, or we, yes? Let us make man in our own image. This is giving us that plurality. Uh, don't go after the notion like some Jewish scholars do that say that God and the angels created man. That's, um, that's, that is heresy, basically. Okay? All right. And then a result of, uh, we see this here with um, creation, is really a result of God's wisdom and His will for His glory. And uh, we can see several passages there that talk about this. Like even Psalm 19, which you know really well, the heavens are declaring the what? The glory of God. Yes, that this is what creation does. This is bringing out this notion here. Okay, and then other passages as well describe that. All right, we don't have time to get into all of those, but we'll keep going here. Creation is distinct from God. This is important. We talked about this just a little bit earlier. Creation is distinct from God. It's not the same thing. We're not pantheists. Even though we do believe that God is omnipresent and He is everywhere, creation is not the same thing as God. And yet, at the same time, creation is dependent upon God. And that's an important thing because that brings up two terms that are kind of big terms. I'll spell them out here for you. But there's the transcendence of God. Okay, the transcendence of God. And then you have the eminence of God. Okay, the eminence of God. Transcendence and eminence. The transcendence is, is the fact that he is above or distinct. That's the distinct part right here, okay? That's his transcendence. He transcends creation. But then also, creation is still, even so, dependent on him for its existence, even the fact that God sustains it. Not just that God kind of like created it and then deistically stepped away and just let it kind of run itself. That's not how we would understand it. God is actually upholding it and actually interworking in his creation on a regular basis. And this is what we, where we get this word eminence from, okay? Eminence is really the idea of that it's that God is near and that He is uh, with us and among us, and that God is really that we are inter- we are dependent upon Him, um, that we are uh, s- s- almost really submitted to Him because of that dependence. Okay, so that is that is the transcendence of God. That's why He's distinct, but then also the fact that we are dependent upon Him, and then. God created the universe, and we know this really well, at a very definite point in time, or at least God created the fabric of time, and arguably God created the space-time continuum when God created light, arguably. And that, hold that with an open hand, a big open hand, only because that's not really coming from the Bible. 
That's coming from just scientific study. But it's really cool to see how scientific study actually aligns with the Bible in this. Because light would need to exist first in order for there to be a space-time continuum. That's really important. It's really cool, isn't it? That See, mostly in history, people would have looked at that and been like, why create light first? That doesn't make any sense, right? But it, it, normally, we wouldn't think that that would, uh, that would need to be the first thing. But... Einstein's studies of the theory of relativity and light and that kind of thing actually has helped us to understand why light needs to be first because it actually creates the fabric for space and time. It's really important. And so at that point, it's really really neat to see that now, once you've got light, now you kind of have like a, a reference point for time and everything else that exists in time. And light has been basically, essentially, proven to be uh, the fastest element in the universe, and we cannot actually exceed it. That's actually been basically proven. As much as Hollywood would love to say that you can go faster than the speed of light, or even go the speed of light, at the point that you go the speed of light, it's literally, you are not existent anymore. And that's it's its own thing. But anyways, okay. So... At least from a material point of view, that's true. Okay, there's a lot I could get into that because there's a whole book um, that I've read. I've read half of it, and I'm still working through it because I'm kind of piecing it together. But uh, Jason Lyle, he's one of the creation scientists, has written a book on the the. It's called the Physics of Einstein. That's what the book's called, and it's incredible because he actually gives an excellent argument in there for why we see light from distant stars, and it's not. And he, he pro- proves it out from the text of Scripture, but he also proves it out even just from a scientific point of view, which is very compelling for people in scientific communities as well. I do have a plan at some point in the future to actually do a whole like seminar, whenever it becomes appropriate, to do something on that and just kind of convey what he's... Uh, communicating that book because it's a lot of mathematical stuff and it's kind of just trying to condense it down into something that uh, we can really understand and um, even apply as we talk to people who are atheistic and really bring up that argument of light from distant stars and how can that be that God created the, the, the universe in six days and that kind of thing. So, all right, so that's kind of beyond what we're talking about right now. But creation was also instant. It was out of nothing. This common phrase that we hear, this... Uh, Uh, This Latin phrase, ex nihilo, out of nothing, is what that means. Uh, God created everything from nothing. And the reason why we would kind of imply that is because it says God spoke, and then it just happened. That's the terminology that's used. It's not that there was something, and then it got made or changed into something. Also, the Hebrew word bara is this notion of like creating something essentially um, almost like it's some new thing that's never even existed before. No part of it has existed before. And that's what this term bara gives the idea. There's also this word asa in Hebrew, which means to make. And that's used everywhere in the Old Testament. And humans make things and God makes things. But at the end of the day, bara is really something that is what God does, which is create something totally brand new that's never really existed before. Okay, So... Anyway, sorry, giving you a little bit of Hebrew stuff that you probably don't need to know, but um, that might be helpful for you. All right, and then God created Adam and Eve, uh, and he did so directly. 
He did this directly. He created them not where it's like... Um, where it's kind of like a process where it's like you had to plant a seed in the ground and then like atoms sprang up out of the ground, right? It's not like that, right? It's that God literally created them in a mature adult human body, not through the natural development of someone giving birth. And uh, that also defies some of the mythologies of that day, which is which is interesting as well. But it talks about in Genesis chapter two, verse seven: the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and so man became a living being. And uh, and then of course for Eve, God caused a deep sleep on Adam and then performed a rib surgery on him <laughs> and formed the woman out of that rib. That's a direct creative event, which really beautifully ties man and God together, which is such an incredible thing. But God's, even God's act of creating them and the descriptions there in Genesis 2 help us to understand the speciality of God's creation of man. These texts, and this is a quote from Grudem, These texts are so explicit that it would be very difficult for someone to hold to the complete truthfulness of Scripture and still hold that human beings are the result of some long evolutionary process. I mean, God directly created them, literally, from the dust. He created Adam. From a rib, He created Eve. Even And then this quote continues, even more impossible to reconcile with an evolutionary view is the fact that this narrative clearly portrays Eve as having no female parent. And so from an evolutionary point of view, he says, he goes on, uh, this would not be possible for even the very first female human being would have been descended from some merely human creature that was still an animal. Okay, and so that's what Grudem's helping us understand that the biblical text just does not align with some process uh, of some creative process that took thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of years. God's creation also produces after its kind. So there is a sense in which God has set up rules and established them such that they produce and they continue producing in natural ways. But that doesn't mean that God's still not involved in the sense that God upholds and sustains these things and even works miraculously around some of these things. God's creation was perfect at the end of the creation week. We see that in Genesis 1, verse 31. And then, like we alluded to earlier, God created the universe in a state of maturity where we see Adam and Eve, that they are mature and they have full adult bodies. We have plant life that... uh, is created essentially, it would seem, with that appearance of age from the very beginning. We have animals, we have the heavens and the earth, even with the appearance of age and so forth. And uh, again, more on that with the light concept um, some, somewhere, somewhere down the line. I hope we can get into that more. Um, and then here's something that I, we, we put in here in the notes I think that's really helpful is just to talk about the old earth view because it's so popular in Christianity today. We are really in a minority when it comes to believing the six-day creation as six literal 24-hour days. We really are. And that's 
that's a shame because one, we really have a Christian community in the United States especially that has capitulated in this area because their authority ultimately is not the word of God at this point. It's really not. And that's a problem. That's a problem. And let me just give you some reasons as to why we take a young earth view and not an old earth view. And it comes down to, one, this is the least likely interpretation uh, of Scripture at this point. Uh, you have days mentioned. Literally, the first day says, um, have you noticed it says, um, he, it says he, there was evening and there was morning one day. If your text is really literal, that's exactly what it says. One day. And there's never actually in the Old Testament where you actually use... Um, I don't want to get into this too much, but there's cardinal numbers and then there's ordinal numbers. Ordinal numbers means you go first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, right? And then there's cardinal numbers, which are one, two, three, four, five. When we're young, we learn the cardinal numbers first, and then we learn uh, later on that there's ordinal numbers as well, right? Uh, you never see in the Old Testament ever, or the Bible, I guess, um, where you have a cardinal number defining a day, and it's not a 24-hour day. It just always is. So there's there's evidence there in that regard. But I think the biggest one is just there was evening and there was morning. Okay, okay, how much clear can you get? What kind of evening are you talking about when it's like, well, it was a million years of evening and then a million years of morning? Right? Like, it doesn't make any sense. The problem is, is that people are coming to the text with their own Desires for the text to say something different. And usually in this culture, it's based upon what science is saying, quote, unquote, yes. But actually what's interesting is that you go to creation science research, and actually science is not necessarily saying that, is it? Because there's actually evidence on the contrary that they are ignoring and downplaying, and that's a huge problem. And there's a lot of there's a lot of different things like and then they try to do these explain away things in science training. It's not a good explanation, uh, and you can see that they actually have a pre-commitment before they get to the text. It's a pre-commitment to um, the scientific community around them. Okay, all right. Now, uh, also, it's denied really the entire historic view of the church until about the 1800s or so, well, 1900s. Um, there might be an exception to this. Augustine may have held a view that it was like longer days than day, but you have to understand, as good as Augustine was in certain areas, especially in salvation and things like that, his view of Bible interpretation in the text was problematic in a lot of areas. And that had to do with the fact that he took a lot of things very symbolically at certain points in his life. And we just don't want to go to Augustine for literal grammatical historical interpretation let's just put it that way because he just he really it's not just in the creation account he botches it in a lot of areas okay that's important uh it places the sun moon and stars millions of years after plants and trees that is a problem because those who are trying to hold this view also want to believe that there's some natural process of holding all of these things that's a problem uh, if insects were formed on the fifth day and plants on the fourth day, how were plants actually even pollinated for millions of years? That should naturally make sense. Like, that doesn't make any sense here. Why, why would that be? Uh, the verbs in the creation account define instanta- uh, instantaneity, uh, not a process. So there's an instantaneous notion here, even just in the terminology of the text. Adam gave names to all the land animals that God had formed. Okay, so... Um, 
but the old earth view would actually say that most of those animals were extinct long before man was on the earth. And then this is a really important one. This puts death before the fall. This is kind of like the nail in the coffin argument. There is millions of years of death before the fall even happens. That's a problem in the text. That's just... And people try to explain around this. And that is just... I think it's Hugh Ross. He has some very bizarre views. And you should be very warned of him, uh, even though he calls himself a Christian. Uh, He's got some extraterrestrial views (laughs) of the text. Um, science determines the Bible. That's, that's probably where the heart of this problem is. The science is ultimately determining the Bible. And it's an issue of authority here. It's an issue of authority. Their authority is not actually the Bible. And people who actually fall into the old earth view often are people who capitulate in other areas like buying wholesale into psychology and other things like that. Why? Because really the, it comes down to the fact that the Bible is not enough. When the Bible's not enough, that the Bible is like the clear meaning of the text is actually saying the clear meaning of the text, at that point, then you're going to capitulate in other areas, and we see that where they're willing to capitulate and going to a psychologist for their soul problems. Well, that's an issue, because you're basically saying what? The Bible's not enough to help me with the spiritual issues of my heart. I need some expert outside the Bible, which actually is founded on atheistic an atheistic foundation, okay? All right, we're out of time, but that's good because we actually reached the part that I'm going to save for next time, which is the providence of God. And just a sneak peek into that really quick. Um, The whole nature of God is perfectly sovereign and fully sovereign and the fact that we have voluntary will. And I use that term voluntary very intentionally because we often use the term free will, Yes? Free will. And free will is a... uh, It can be confusing, right? Because sometimes people use free will and they mean it in a good way. They just mean free in the sense that I'm making voluntary choices. Yes? That's what you mean by free. But we're not saying, well, free from the sovereignty of God. No, we're not saying that. But other people that we talk with sometimes do want to mean free in terms of free from the sovereignty of God. So I just stay away from the word free and I use the term voluntary because voluntary upholds the notion that we still are actively and fully intending what we do but we're not necessarily free from the sovereignty of God, not at all. And I want to talk about how these things coalesce or come together uh, and how that actually is proved out in Scripture but uh, we're going to save that for next time. One other quick note. Next week, we're not meeting for BTI. In fact, no Sunday school is. We're going to be meeting in the main service in the Sunday school hour because our missionary, Tim Carnes, is coming, and he's going to give a, a presentation. So next week, that's what we're going to do. I'll send out a notice about that as well. And then the week after that, then we'll pick up and do the sovereignty of God and um, the providence of God, so to speak, and then um, the human voluntary will. And we'll, we'll basically close out this this segment here. Uh, and that will conclude. Next, the next time we meet, we'll conclude. It'll be our last time in Module 1.
So we've actually reached the end of module one. You're like, finally. It took him forever to get through module I know. Yeah, we're, we're, we're making our way here. I know there were some detours and things that I did, uh, and I appreciate you for humoring me as we do that because I, I just have a lot of fun doing this. Um, so then we'll, we'll finish up with module one. We'll um, make an announcement to people to um, join us for module two if they want to jump in, and then we'll just keep going. All right? Let me pray for really quick. Oh, yeah, Jill, yeah. Yeah, we probably will do it the week after we're done with this last segment here. So that will probably be, it's either the last Sunday of January or it's the first Sunday of February. So is that answering your question? Yes. Okay. No little break. No real break. We just go right into it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, because I'm like, I'm already using all, whatever break time we could have had, I'm already using it all up with other things. So yeah, we just have to keep going. Otherwise, you'll be here for like six or seven years and you'll be like, ah, this is taking forever. So yeah. All right. Let me pray for us really quick. Father, thank you so much for this time. And just as we see your grand display of power and glory and eternality and omniscience and that you're everywhere and that you're all wise. Lord, we're so grateful for these things. It gives us comfort because we're in Christ. And because of that, we're safe and we're secure in you, safe from your wrath, which we rightly deserve. And so, Lord, we are so grateful for that. Please help us to be a light and a testimony to those who are not saved so that they, too, will know the goodness and the greatness of God uh, and worship you as a result of it. For that, you desire for all people, and we thank you for that. Lord, we pray that we would worship you um, with all our hearts and with all our soul this morning uh, in the main service. In Jesus' name, amen.